Uh, my wife, who has the gift of encouragement, uh, said, Gary, you've got a hard act to follow after all of those kids, so <laughs> what can I say? <laughs> um, I'd like to read a familiar passage that'll be our blueprint for today, and if uh, you wouldn't mind turning to Luke chapter 15 and uh, standing, please. Luke chapter 15, rather lengthy passage, but uh, very, very familiar. I'll begin verse, uh, at verse 11. And Jesus said, a certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to the father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. And he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country and, began to be, and he began to be in need. And he went and attached himself to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. And he was longing to fill his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving him anything. But when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough to eat? But I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and I will go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. And he got up and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to him, Slaves, quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and bring the fatted calf, kill it, and let's eat and be merry. For the son of mine was dead, and now has come to life again. He was lost, and he has been found, and they began to be merry. Now his older brother, now his older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he said, he heard music and dancing, and he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things might be. And he said, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in, and his father came out and began entreating him. But he, said, but he answered and said to his father, look, for so many years I have been serving you, and I've never neglected a command of yours. And yet you have never given me a kid that I might be merry with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, my child, you've always been with me and all that is mine is yours. But we had to be merry and rejoice for the brother of yours was dead and he has begun to live. He was lost and has been found. This is God's word. Amen and amen. God bless you. Be seated. Just put this you know, a man for all seasons is the uh, title that I have given this uh, message here, this Father's Day message. Uh, I'm actually borrowing the title from a play 
that was written by Robert Bull back in 1960. Uh, and A Man for All Seasons is really the story of Sir Thomas More, the brilliant uh, English lawyer and nobleman, longtime friend of King Henry VIII, uh, back in the 1500s, actually. Sir Thomas More, under the reign of King Henry VIII, actually ascended to the post of Lord Chancellor in 1529. He was a serious Catholic. Now, Henry broke from the Catholic Church when the Pope refused to give him a divorce from Catherine at that time. And when he broke from the Catholic Church, Sir Thomas More resigned his very prestigious position. Now, a few years later in England, the Parliament passed a bill. And the bill was this. It required everyone in England to take an oath acknowledging the supremacy of the king over all foreign sovereigns, and that would include the Pope. And that was an oath that Sir Thomas More refused to take. And as a result of that, King Henry put his good friend in prison and then executed him a year later. Now, the story is a, a compelling portrait of a courageous man who died for his convictions. And Samuel Johnson said this about Sir Thomas More. He was the most virtuous person that England has ever produced. Now, not all dads, including yours truly, measure up probably to the character of Sir Thomas More. And yet, when I think about the dads in this fellowship, and I'm in the process of getting to know many of you, to be sure, but the words character, courage, generosity, Sacrifice come to my mind. And you, and you men are willing to go to the wall. You're willing to take the blows. And you won't leave your post as a dad. And you will never give up, no matter what, on a son or a daughter. Now, this is really not chest-pounding with respect to how good of a father you and I might be. Uh, some of us have engaged in some grave and sinful behavior, and we understand that. All dads realize that we could have done better. We thank God for the patient wives who cover our inadequacies and resilient children who don't hold our mistakes against them, against us. Uh, parenting is an inexact science, and we dads need a whole lot of uh, daily grace. Uh, today's message has a positive spin. You know, I'm not interested in beating up dads. I'm not interested in beating up myself. We can choose to do that tomorrow if we want. But today, we're not going to do it. And I want to briefly look at that familiar story that I read a few minutes ago and extract a few meaningful thoughts. Because in this story, it's a little parable of Jesus, uh, are two sons, an older son and a younger son. Now, I happen to be a middle child. And as a middle child, I love all of the dynamics of birth order. See, the younger son is a free spirit. He's a party waiting to happen. And he loves being the focus of attention. Uh, the youngest always want to be the groom at every wedding, the corpse at every funeral. They love the limelight. They love being the baby of the family. And researchers say that's just the way the youngest are. Now, the older son, on the other hand, follows the rules. He colors inside the lines. He makes disgustingly good grades. 
And people admire them for their accomplishment, but they admire them from a distance. They really don't want to get too close to them because they carry this sense of arrogance around them. Anyway, researchers say that's just the way the oldest are. Now, you'll notice that there's no middle child in this story here, in this parable. Researchers actually say middle children tend to be the healthiest and most well-adjusted children in the family. And you, the rest of you have to just deal with that, by the way. <laughs> anyway, uh, this younger son, he shatters the family. He says, Dad, I want my inheritance, and I want my inheritance now. And when we read this story, it's really not about a young man who wants to appropriately exert his independence and explore the world. That's a really, really good thing, but that's not what the story is about. Uh, the younger son is demanding his inheritance while his father is still living. You know, that's tantamount in Middle Eastern culture saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. I really don't care that much about you, but I do like the stuff that you've got. I want your gifts. And Jesus continues in the story. He says, not many days after that, the son gathered all that he had, and the family did have considerable resources, mostly in land and livestock. And it would take a little bit of a time for the father to be able to come up with and honor his son's demand. He had to liquidate assets, sell off some of the family possessions, some of which would be longtime family treasures. Meanwhile, the whole village, the entire village knows what's taking place here. Uh, you know, if a Jewish boy takes out an inheritance and he goes and loses it to the Gentiles and then wants to return to the village, he's no longer welcome. He can't do it. And so the father, he takes what is rightly is, what will sustain him in his old age, and he gives it freely to his youngest son, knowing that it's going to cause him a great deal of pain. You see, the younger son then defies his father, shirks his obligations, blows off gratitude, moves to a distant country, squanders everything that the father gave him, and then a famine came. It wasn't just a famine, it was a great famine. Now, in those days, there was no world vision, there was no Samaritan's Purse, there was no telethons, there was no transportation, there was really no hope. In the ancient world, a great famine meant stealing, starvation, children being sold into slavery, and even cannibalism. Now, in order to survive, the youngest son took care of pigs. Now, pigs were unclean animals, and to a devout Jew, that was a despicable job. And the younger son was simply enticed by originally just going independent. Uh, he was tired of working the fields. He was tired of, following, tired of following all of the rules. And he simply wanted to get out of the house and chart his own course in life. What he didn't see was this. Impoverishment, loneliness, and being cut off from the benefits of the family. And there are times in the midst of out there he wanted to go home, but he knows that he can't because he knows what would be waiting for him if he got there. See, if, if a young guy were to go home after blowing his father's inheritance and the Gentiles owning it, the people in the village would gather together and they'd take this big clay pot, kind of like those huge pots that you see in a shopping center with a big tree growing out of them. And then they would take their sledgehammers 
And uh, before the fellow who's coming back, they would crush that big pot, just grind it to pieces and to power. And, and then they would look at that prodigal son and say, this is the brokenness that you have brought on our village by coming and doing what you did. You've broken the heart of your father. You've broken the trust of the community. The damage you've done is beyond repair, and you're no longer welcome here. That's what was going on. They go through this ceremony called kazaza. Now, kazaza is the Hebrew word that means cut off, cutting off. Say the word with me, kazaza. One more try. Kazaza, okay. Cutting off. The boy knows what's waiting for him if he comes home. But he's so lonely, he's so miserable, he's so desperate that he decides to go anyway. And so he creates this little speech, and he rehearses it over in his mind. He says, I will get up, and I will go to my father, and I will say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. Because you see, that prodigal son understood that he no longer was going to enjoy the intimacy of the father. There was no chance of that. He just wanted to go back. So this desperate young man, crushed by defeat and humiliation, makes his journey back to the village. And as he reaches the outskirts of the village, word begins to spread that the prodigal has come back. Uh, in his disheveled condition, he's hardly recognizable. He's lost half his father's estate. The land that used to belong to his father was now in the hands of the Gentiles. And he sees the village... And he knows what's coming. The big pot is already out. Everybody's got a sledgehammer in their hand. And he knows that he's going to be mocked and taunted. As he approaches, the people gather for this climactic moment. Uh, But there's one thing that he had not counted on. You see, his father went out to the gate of his property and he gazed at the horizon every single day looking to see if his son might be coming back. And up to this particular time, it's all been in vain. But at this particular time, he happened to see someone which might be his son. And then he can tell by his walk that it actually was his son. And Luke uses a technical term where the father got off and ran. He literally got out of that gate and he ran toward his son. And the word run is a a very strategic word here in the Greek text. And that word is only used in conjunction with uh, uh, an Olympic race or something like that. It literally means that his father sprinted. Uh, In Middle Eastern culture, by the way, a nobleman never runs. Uh, A nobleman, it's beyond their dignity to run. They have these long, free-flowing robes. They just never ran. Children run. People who are desperate run. People who are in trouble run. But never a nobleman. They always walk in a very careful, dignified manner, like John Wayne. (laughs) He was tough. He was cool. That's the way this nobleman was supposed to go. But his father... His heart is so full 
that he forgets his dignity, he forgets his robe, he forgets everybody that's watching, and he takes off like LeBron James on a fast break. Just get out of his way because he'll run right over you if you get in his way. You see, the father realizes that if the village gets to his son before he does, that it will be kazaza. It will mean shame and humiliation, and it will crush his spirit. And so the father is thinking, I have to reach him before anybody else does. Then when the father gets to him, what proceeds after that, there really aren't adequate words to describe it. The father doesn't say anything. He just throws his arms around his son and hugs him and kisses him for who knows how long. He doesn't give him the third degree. He doesn't rag on his irresponsibility. He just simply loves his son. And finally, the son speaks. He says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And the father at that moment just shuts him up. And he says, Go get the best robe. Go get the most expensive shoes. Go give the the finest rings you can find. Kill the fatted calf because there will be no kazaza. See, brokenness in the minds of the father is not going to have the last word. Not for my boy. It's not going to be that way. There will be music. There will be dancing. And from dad, he realized he didn't get a frown, he got a feast, just coming home to the father. Now, dad uh, still has work to do because he's got another son. And uh, most uh, dads, most of you dads, have more than one child. And that means that uh, you've got to have a whole lot of moxie and flexibility because no two children are the same. You can't form a template, and uh, everybody fits into that particular mode. So just being a dad itself needs uh, a lot of flexibility and wisdom. But the older son is sent into a little bit of a spin because of what he considers as fickle forgiveness. And his life deconstructs right on the spot. The beauty of his humanity is just fading away. You see, the oldest son has a responsibility at this celebration that the father had for the homecoming of the younger son. He needs to be amongst the people and circulating and seeing if they have enough food or enjoying themselves. But he refuses to do that by not even going to the party itself. He was exposing his dad to a measure of humiliation. Now, the dad could have ordered him to go. Uh, He probably would have gone because he was a son that understood orders. But dad didn't want external obedience only. He didn't want a hired servant. He wants to be delighted in as a loving father. But here he's not going to get it. You see, those who live in grace will always have a tendency to tilt toward gratitude. Those who live under law are always going to tilt to the side of complaint. And when the older brother was griping about his younger brother's behavior, he says in verse 30, this son of yours. In other words, the older brother was speaking as if he was not even part of the family. And when he mentions prostitutes, it's clear that his imagination has been working because he doesn't know that for sure. 
It appears that the older brother wants to smear the younger brother and put him in the worst possible light. It's kind of one of those weirdest aspects of the human condition. Uh, Deep in the heart, uh, there's not nearly as big a difference between a rebel and a rule keeper as a rule keeper would like you to believe. Verse 30, it says, But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And the father said to him, Son, you have always been with me, and all I have is yours. And the Greek word for son is the word huias. But he doesn't use that word. He uses the word technon which means child. In other words, he's talking to his oldest son as tenderly as a child. He says, my child, everything I have belongs to you. But we have to celebrate. I mean, your son was dead, but now he's alive. He was lost, but now he's found. And when Jesus told this story, uh, his intention was not to simply give a model of what dad's are to be like, that dads, how dads are to behave. What, we, what he was in, intending to communicate to you and to me is how our Heavenly Father behaves toward us. So in other words, all we have to do, dads, is imitate the God of glory in the way that we lead our own home. <laughs> At best, we're a distant shadow of that. But there's one way we can make progress without getting crushed. And the secret is looking at the older brother. Not the older brother in this story, but the older brother to whom this story points. And that would be none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, one of the sidebars of this story is that the younger brother's entrance back into the family came at the expense of the older brother. I mean, the younger brother blew his inheritance. Everything else belonged to the older brother. Everything left was his property. And he was saying, hey, you can't welcome back that traitor. I mean, you're bringing him back at my expense. You're asking me to give up my wealth. And the older brother would have been a good older brother if he would have taken some of the resources, some of his own resources, gone to a foreign land, found his kid brother, And said, here's my stuff. You come on back at my expense. Because that's exactly what Jesus did for the human race. You know, we started out as family. We were all in the Garden of Eden, so to speak. In in the form of our first parents and Adam and Eve. And there was unbroken fellowship and communion with God. But then they ate the forbidden fruit. And as a result of that, we inherited that sin nature. And all of a sudden... We now no longer have that same relationship with our Father. And so what happens? God sends the older brother in the form of Jesus, and he dispatches him to earth, and he freely gives up which is what, that which is his so that we can hop on his back and get to the Father itself. God welcomes you. He welcomes me at the expense of his elder son. There's a brother. The only begotten son brothered us so that the heavenly father 
can father us. That's the beauty of what the story is all about. It's a reminder that uh, it's really a story about God, not so much about an older brother and a younger brother, but it's about the blessedness of God who takes us in whatever condition he finds us, and he says, just come in and let me love you. And through that, we all have a basis for change in life itself. Uh, I have uh, one thing I want to read to you today. Uh, It'll take about five minutes. Uh, I've read it a long time ago, and I just opened it up again in the last day or so, and it just absolutely wrecks me. But I'm going to try and get through this thing. And then I have one thing after that I want to share with you. But this uh, story comes out of Philip Yancey's book, What's So Amazing About Grace? And uh, there's a chapter in there called The Lovesick Father. It's kind of a modern-day version of uh, the parable of the prodigal son. Just listen to it. A young girl grows up on a cherry orchard just above Traverse City, Michigan. Her parents, a bit old-fashioned, tend to overreact to her nose ring, the music she listens to, and the length of her skirts. They ground her a few times, and she sees inside, I hate you. She screams at her father and mother when, he, when they knock at the door of her room after an argument. And that night, she acts on a plan she has mentally rehearsed scores of time. She runs away. She has visited Detroit only once before on a bus trip with her church youth group to watch the Tigers play. Because the newspapers in Traverse City report in lurid detail the gangs, the drugs, the violence in downtown Detroit, she concludes that's probably the last place her parents will look for her. Her second day there, she meets a man who drives the biggest car she's ever seen. He offers her a ride, buys her lunch, arranges a place for her to stay. He gives her some pills that make her feel better than she's ever felt before. She was right all along, she thinks. Her parents were keeping her from all of the fun. The good life continues for a month, <clears throat> two months, and then a year. The man with the big car calls her, she calls boss teaches her some, a few things that men like. Uh, since she's underage, men will pay a premium for her. She lives in a penthouse and orders room service whenever she wants Occasionally, she thinks about the folks back at home, but their lives now seem so boring and provincial that she can hardly believe she grew up there. She has a brief scare <clears throat> when she sees her picture printed on the back of a milk carton, Have You Seen This Child? But by now, she has blonde hair uh, with tons of makeup and body-piercing jewelry, and she realizes that nobody will ever mistake her for a child. And besides, most of her friends are runaways and nobody squeals in Detroit. After a year, the first signs of illness appear and it amazes her how fast the boss turns mean. These days we can't mess around, he growls, and before she knows it, she's out on the street without a penny to her name. She turns a couple of tricks a night, but they don't pay much. And all the money goes to support her habit. When winter blows in, she finds herself sleeping on a metal grate outside the department stores. 
Dark bands form around her eyes. Her cough worsens. She no longer feels like a woman of the world. She feels like a little girl lost in a frightening city. She begins to whimper. It's cold. Her pockets are empty, and she's hungry. Something jolts a synapse of memory, and a single image fills her mind of May in Traverse City, when a million cherry trees bloom at once and her golden retriever dashing through the rows chasing a tennis ball. The pain stabs at her heart. My dog back home eats better than I do. She's sobbing and she knows in a flash that more than anything else in the world, she wants to go home. Three straight phone calls and three straight connections with the answering machine. She hangs up without leaving a message the first two times. But the third time she says, Dad, Mom, it's me. I was wondering about maybe coming home. I'm catching a bus up your way, and I'll get there about midnight tomorrow. If you're not there, I guess I'll just stay on the bus until it hits Canada. It takes about seven hours for a bus ride to make all the stops between Detroit and Traverse City. During that time, she realizes the flaws in her plan. What if her parents are out of town and miss the message? Shouldn't she have waited another day or two so she could talk to them? And even if they are at home, they probably wrote her off as dead long ago. She should have given them some time to overcome the shock. <clears throat> her thought bounced back and forth between those worries and the speech she is preparing for her father. Dad, I'm sorry. I know I was wrong. It's not your fault. It's all mine. Can you forgive me? And she says those words over and over again, her throat tightening as she rehearses. When the bus finally rolls into Traverse City Station, the driver announces crack, over in a crackly voice over a microphone, 15 minutes, folks. That's all we have here. 15 minutes to decide her life. She checks herself in a compact mirror, smooths her hair, licks the lipstick off her teeth. She looks at the tobacco stains on her fingertips and wonder if her parents will notice, if they're even there. She walks into the terminal, not knowing what to expect. Not one of a thousand possibilities that have played out in her own mind prepares her for what she sees. There, surrounded by plain concrete walls, and furnished with plastic chairs are 40 brothers and sisters and great aunts and uncles and cousins and a grandmother and a great-grandmother to boot. They're all wearing goofy party hats and blowing noisemakers and taped across the entire wall is a computer-driven banner that read, Welcome Home. And out of the crowd steps her dad. He stares at her through the tears quivering in her eyes like hot mercury and begins her memorized speech. Dad, I'm sorry. He interrupts her, hush, child. No time for apologies. You'll be late for the party. We've got a banquet waiting for you at home. Great story, isn't it? Makes you want to go out and buy the book. It's a great book. Um, I've also got a gift for you fathers today. Uh, it's not a big gift, but it's, it's an important gift. Um, you know, one thing about dads is that we kind of, there are times in our life where we want to be known as, as kind of a hunk. You know, it just doesn't, 
you know, we can't be as big as Fidel, or we can't be as big as Rufus, or something like that here. And, you know, but, you know, we still, as dads, want to be a hunk, you know? And so, um, I, I, I've got a gift for those of you today uh, that have a desire for this, and um, my wife kind of wrapped it up here for me. So, for you dads that want to be a hunk, I've got a, a, I've got a, a, a big hunk candy bar for you. <laughs> and that's, uh, so, you know, there's plenty for all of you, really, if you want to be a hunk. But sometimes, some of you may have said, you know, I've had a tough week, and uh, things have gone bad, and somehow I, I just don't feel like a hunk right now. And you know, that's okay. We're, we're all there at times in our lives where we just don't feel like a hunk, and that just doesn't sound that good. So I bought you dads that don't feel like a hunk a little box of candy called Lemon Heads. <laughs> and uh, you can feel free to take either one. But remember, Big Brother will be watching which one you take. So, okay? They'll be, they'll be over here at the, the health food table, right, <laughs> right here a, after, after this service. So, uh, uh, would you stand with me and I'll close in a word of prayer. Uh, we have, I, I guess, uh, yeah, we have a closing song. <clears throat> Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much uh, for dads today, and uh, Lord, goodness knows we are imperfect, and uh, we know that uh, we need uh, continuous strength and help from our Heavenly Dad as to how we uh, walk and how we talk and how we treat those we so love. And we pray, Father, that we will continue to draw our strength from you. And we thank you, Father, that kids are resilient. Uh, they know when we goof up as parents. And somehow, Father, uh, they just don't hold it against us. And that's a tribute to their own maturity. And we thank you for young girls and young guys that uh, are, are just uh, so supportive of us. And thank you for the dads that are here. And we pray, Father, that this uh, day would be special for them. In Christ's name.